You're listening to a Stranger podcast. www.thestranger.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Love Cast. There's something else I wanted to talk about at the top of the show, but breaking news uh, compels me to once again talk about the gay. One day there will be not gay breaking news all the time, and I will be able to focus on other things. But we once again have another example of the problem with Republicans and you know how I love the Republicans and their problems. Rush Limbaugh was not for uh, drug treatment but was for incarceration until he developed a drug problem and then he is for drug treatment over incarceration. Nancy Reagan is for stem cell research because Ronald Reagan has Alzheimer's disease. Dick Cheney is for gay marriage because he has a lesbian daughter. We see over and over and again the, the problem with Republicans being that they, they can't – empathize with other human beings and their struggles and their plights unless it happens to them. And then all of the sudden, they can see the wisdom in drug treatment, over-incarceration, in stem cell research, in equality for uh, LGBT people, whatever. And we have another example. Rob Portman, who is a Republican senator from Ohio, a presidential prospect, was one of the people that Mitt Romney auditioned to be his running mate. Um, anti-gay, uh, rock-solid anti-gay record, social conservative, um, voted for the Defense of Marriage Act, voted to ban gays in Washington, D.C. from adopting children and supported a federal constitutional amendment to ban gay marriage. And I'm sure as all of you have heard, last week he changed his mind and came out for marriage equality because his 21-year-old son, Will, Will Portman, a junior at Yale, came out to his parents about a year ago. And so Rob Portman, because it has happened to him, because someone that he loves is gay, has changed his mind and now supports equality for gay people. Quote, knowing that my son is gay allowed me to think about this issue from a new perspective and that's as a dad who loves his son a lot and wants him to have the same opportunities that his brother and sister have. What on God's green fucking earth prevented Rob Portman from thinking those thoughts before his son came out to him about other people's children, that there were other human beings on this planet, including Dick fucking Cheney, who I believe Rob Portman has heard of and perhaps met and voted for twice for vice president, have gay children. What about their children? This is that – that some that circuit breaker that 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 gap that so many Republicans can't leap, which is if I don't have a drug problem, if my dad doesn't have Alzheimer's, if I don't have a gay child, I can't see the necessity of stem cell research, treatment over incarceration, equal rights for queer people uh, until it happens to me, and then suddenly my eyes are opened. It's a failure of the moral imagination that Rob Portman wasn't able to see that other people had gay children and their gay children deserve the same rights as their straight children. Rob Portman's being hailed today as a bit of a hero. Uh, the real hero in this is Will Portman, Rob's 21-year-old son. It can't have been easy to grow up as the gay son of a right-wing, rabidly anti-gay Republican politician and he did absolutely the right thing. He came out to his parents which was an act of real courage and as I've said for 30 years, uh, the single most important political action that any gay, lesbian, bi or trans person can take is to be out to your family. 
That changes people. That is our secret weapon. When people ask why the LGBT civil rights movement has made such progress, why such rapid progress compared to other social justice movements, this is it. We are born into the families of the straight class that oppressed us and by coming out to our families, we change our families. We open their eyes and Will Portman because he's brave enough to come out to his parents and I think smart enough to wait. A lot of queer kids I hear from have parents who are rapidly anti-gay and they are afraid of their parents. They're afraid of coming out and rightly so. 40% of homeless teenagers are LGBT kids who were kicked out or thrown out after they came out or were outed to their families. So it's a real danger actually out there for LGBT kids who have rapidly homophobic parents as Will Portman did, had rapidly homophobic parents. I think there's a reason he didn't come out in middle school. There's a reason he didn't come out in high school. He was vulnerable in high school, vulnerable in middle school. He waited wisely perhaps. I don't know anything about the internal dynamics of the Portman family and I'm not speculating. But he waited until sophomore year at Yale, until he was an adult. And then he came out to his parents. Maybe that's when he was ready to come out. Maybe he was ready years earlier and figured he couldn't come out. He couldn't risk it because he couldn't trust his parents to react in a loving and supportive way. And he waited as so many LGBT kids do and many need to. He waited until he was an adult and his parents couldn't retaliate against him. But he did it. That's the important thing. He did it. When the time was right, when he was in a good place, when he was safe, he came out to his family did the right thing and he changed his family, changed his dad, opened his dad's eyes. Another Republican with his eyes opened because it happened to him. So that happened and I kind of had to talk about that. What I really wanted to talk about, I really wanted to open the show with a little straight news because straight people listen and I like straight people and straight people are my friends and this is a show in my column mostly about straight people and straight sex. Uh, I call this Straight Rights Watch. That straight people, you need to know that the anti-gay religious right, these organizations like Family Research Council and the American Family Association, they have an anti-straight agenda too. They're not just going to stop if and when they successfully manage to shove all queer people back into their closets and end gay marriage wherever it's been legalized and la da da da. They have an anti-straight agenda which they've sort of laid their cards on the table in the last 18 months, two years. They want to ban birth control. They want to ban abortion. Uh, there's a move now to make divorce harder to get. And last week, Pat Fagan, yes, Pat Fagan, F-A-G-A-N, Pat Fagan, senior fellow at the American Family Association, he said this, condemning the 1972 Supreme Court ruling that overturned the ban on selling contraceptives to unmarried people, to young, single, straight people. He said it's not just the contraception. Everybody thinks it's about contraception. But what this court case said was that young people have the right to engage in sex outside of marriage. Society never gave young people that right. And this is where it gets interesting. Functioning societies don't do that. They stop it. They punish it. They corral people. They shame people. They do whatever. The institution for the expression of sexuality is marriage and all societies always shepherd young people there. What the Supreme Court said was forget that shepherding. Listen to that. Functioning societies don't do that. They stop it. They punish it. They punish premarital sex. They punish single people who have sex. You know what? The only functioning societies I'm aware of and I wouldn't call them functioning very much that do that, Saudi Arabia and Iran, Yemen, Afghanistan. This is when – Left-wingers, when 
cause, a daily cause. When we call these people the American Taliban, we fucking mean it. Iran, single, unmarried people who get caught holding hands, much less having premarital sex, flogged, publicly flogged, thrown into prison, Saudi Arabia, beheaded. This is the kind of society that the American Taliban fantasizes about. And then hypocritically turns around and complains about Sharia, creeping Sharia. They're the creeps who want to introduce Sharia to America, not Muslims, Christians. They want to bring Sharia here. They look at Saudi Arabia. They look at young straight people being flogged and they see a functioning society, the American Family Association. They're not just the enemy of the queers. They're your enemies too. Your calls after this. ExtremeRestraints.com is the ultimate no-holds-barred sex toy store. Whether it's premium lubes, eight-speed wand massagers, electrosex gear, or fucking machines, Extreme Restraints brings you a wide selection and low prices. You can take an extra 10% off ExtremeRestraints.com's already low prices with coupon code GGG2013. Double that discount for 20% off if you use GGG2013 by this Sunday. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create a professional website, blog, portfolio, and now an online store. Check out their new commerce solution so that you can start selling stuff immediately. For a free trial and 10% off your first purchase on new accounts, go to squarespace.com savage and use offer code SAVAGE3. Hi, Dan. I'm a 25-year-old straight male. Uh, from Michigan. Um, about two and a half years ago, I started dating this girl, and I was going really great. And then um, from one day, I noticed bumps on my genitalia. Uh, I was in a committed relationship. Uh, I obviously, I didn't cheat, and it turns out I had uh, two different STIs that I had to have acid, or bicachloric acid, poured on my genitals to get to burn them off and get cured. This uh Obviously, it left me very scarred. I obviously broke up with her, but I'm still not over the incident. Um, it ended very abruptly. I haven't talked to her since, but it's really affected my dating life. I haven't had a girlfriend since. I've been very depressed to the point where I actually tried to kill myself multiple times, not only because of this, but I also lost my job. I lost my apartment. So... How do I get over this? I tried setting up a meeting to, this is two years later, uh, I tried setting up a meeting to talk with her, but obviously she isn't having it. She's happy and with a new guy, which kills me inside because I, I feel like she should get some kind of punishment, but she obviously got off scot-free. I just don't know what to do. What seems relevant to your anger what would seem to be a justification for this kind of lingering resentment would be knowledge that she infected you maliciously and that she knew she had some sexually transmitted infections and didn't disclose and recklessly put you in danger and you contracted these things and you went and got treated uh, and that was traumatic for you. Then you could be perhaps angry still. But when it comes to I'm not sure exactly what STIs you're talking about here, but if they were treated the way you say that they were treated, they sound skin-based, topical. Maybe we're talking HPV, warts. Um, it's unclear. Acid is sometimes used to treat genital warts. General warts, HPV, uh, 
people will have an outbreak and then they usually don't have another outbreak. Eventually, your body will clear the virus if it's been a couple of years and you've had no other outbreaks. You may not even be infected with HPV anymore. You may have just cleared the virus. That you had this treatment with acid, which can in some cases leave scars, uh, particularly if it's ineptly done, you shouldn't obsess about those scars or look at them too closely. I don't want to give too gross an example. I was with a guy for a year who had an accident on the farm he grew up in where he fell on a tractor pipe that was hot, straddled it. It burned through his pants and it burned his dick and the bottom of his balls. I didn't notice because it's all such kind of a spangly jangly mess of skin and weirdness down there anyway. I didn't notice for a year that he had scar tissue for a taint. Your sex partners are unlikely to notice that you have a few speckly spots, some minor scarring from having HPV warts burned off. So please, you can see them because they weren't there before and they're there now and the memories that they bring back for you are horrible. You can see them when you stare at your dick. A future sex partner isn't even going to notice them. I didn't notice my boyfriend's melted taint for a year and I spent time down there, quality time. Your future girlfriend is highly unlikely to notice a couple of spots, specs and some minor in comparison to that scarring from uh, ward treatment. But she didn't give you HIV and you ain't dead. And sexually transmitted infections are a known risk of sexual activity uh, and a lot of sexually transmitted infections are really common and really easily transmitted and you can't really be sexual and be this delicate and this vulnerable emotionally to this known risk. It's almost like taking a car out for a drive and not putting your seatbelt on or getting into a fender bender and bumping your head and being just sort of furiously, cosmically angry at the world forever because this happened to you. Well, this happens to people in sexual relationships. Sexually transmitted infections happen. You should go get treated. If you know you have a sexually transmitted infection, you should disclose. If somebody treats you badly, you have a right to be angry. You can express that anger. At a certain point, you have to let that fucking anger go. And I think you've past that point where you need to let that anger go. It might help you to let it go if you just accept that – this is one of the risks that comes with being a sexually active adult and the benefits of being a sexually active adult, which are sex, are worth these risks, these potential negative consequences. And you went and got treated. Sounds like it was topical. So sounds like it was something not permanent, not necessarily disfiguring. And you should be able to let it go and move on. If you have attempted suicide because you had sexually transmitted infections – that were treated, uh, you know, and on top of other things, losing your partner, losing your job, all these things are very stressful. You should find a therapist or a counselor to talk to about the underlying problems. The problem may not be the job loss. The problem may not be the shitty ex-girlfriend who gave you a sexually transmitted infection. The problem may be deeper than that, depression or something else that makes those things triggering. If that kind of life pressure, that kind of Shit that happens to people, shitty shit that happens, losing your job, losing your apartment, getting an STI, getting dumped, tips you into the attempting suicide place, then you need to work on the deeper shit. 
because life is going to keep happening to you and bad shit is going to keep happening to you. You're going to have other bad relationships. You will lose other jobs. You will hit other rough patches in your life and you need to build yourself up. You need to find the inner strength to get through those without self-destructing or destroying yourself or committing suicide or harming yourself. You can get there. One of the ways you can will yourself there is to will yourself to forgive this girl and to stop obsessing about her and this desire to punish her is a little sexist, is a little extreme, is a little psychotic. This is a known risk, sexually transmitted infections. I imagine that if she knew she had these things and maliciously, thoughtlessly put you at risk for them, that you would have mentioned that, that that would have been in the bill of indictment against the ex-girlfriend. So it's possible that she wasn't even aware as many people who have sexually transmitted infections aren't even aware that they have them. Many people have sexually transmitted infections and are infectious and are not symptomatic. They don't know that they have an STI. They don't know that they're putting a partner at risk. Maybe that was the case here and you can find it in yourself to forgive her and to go get a full battery of STI tests yourself before you become sexually active with anyone else so that you don't do that to anyone unknowingly. And get a counselor and talk about the underlying issues that are leaving you so vulnerable when shit happens, an STI, job loss, losing your apartment, that suddenly you're so self-destructive in the face of that that you would attempt suicide. Good luck. Hi, Dan. I am a 43-year-old wife and mother from Brooklyn, New York. I've been with my husband for over 15 years. When we met, um, he was a lot kinkier than I was, and he introduced me to a lot of things that I really enjoy now, including anal, and he has blackened my ass. Uh, more than a few times with his belt. I used to think that it was kind of weird and I wanted to do more making love and less fucking. But as I've entered my 40s, um, finding my kink and I want to get stinked. I want to get whipped. Particularly, I have um, a riding crop that I really want him to hit me with. But in the meantime, um, in the last couple of years, he's gotten really into yoga. He's taken up vegetarianism and is trying to live a life of nonviolence. And guess what? I'm not getting hit as much. So um, there's a lot of wonderful things about our sex life. We have recently opened up to having sex with other couples in group situations, and it's been really hot. And I've gotten to experience my fantasy uh, once in a while. Um, sometimes when he's been drinking, uh, don't worry, we don't do breath play during that time. <laughs> and one time with a guy that we had uh, foursome with. The other day, I asked him, would it be okay if I explored finding a man, part of a couple that we could quote-unquote swing with, that would be willing to provide this thinking and whipping that I feel that I want very badly. And he said that he thought it was quote-unquote sad that I wanted someone to hurt me. I felt pretty judged. I felt like he was shutting down the conversation. Um, I told him that I didn't think that it was sad at all, but um, for me it was a kink the way I was wired 
and a very happy and loving thing for me. We weren't able to come to any kind of consensus. Um, he later revised it to say that it made him feel sad rather than that it was sad, like in a judgment sense. But we're kind of at an impasse, and I'm wondering what to do next. Um, I guess I'm going to try to find a situation where I can get it within the, the group sex, but I'm also wondering, and I have a feeling you're going to say no to this, is there any way to get him to open up a can of whoop ass on me? Sounds like you did open up a can of whoop ass on you. You said... I want to be hurt and he hurt you by being a bag of dicks about how you would like to be hurt. He actually said something that was emotionally sadistic and in all the wrong ways. Instead of saying, oh, yeah, give me the crop, whatever makes you happy, let's make that happen. And regarding this as play and as something positive and affirming and sexy and fun for you, he busted out that that gives me a sad bullshit. What I would do if I were you is I would tell him, OK, I'm sorry that this thing that is fun and sexy makes you sad. I'm going to go find somebody that it makes glad and I'm going to get this need met elsewhere. You've already opened your relationship up to other people. If it's fine for you to be spanked in a four-way situation in front of him without him having a sad, he should be fine with you maybe getting this need met elsewhere in and out in front of him, perhaps without any other sex or anything else. You can negotiate around that but you need to start dictating terms to your yoga-doing, vegetarian, lifestyle-adopting, increasingly douchey husband and say, you kind of got me into this and I kind of like it now and I'm in my 40s and I'm hitting my king stride and this stuff is going to be a part of my sex life. I'll do this stuff with you but if you don't do this stuff, I need your permission slip allowing me to do this stuff with somebody else. And then I bet he really has a sad and you can tell him to choke on that sad and you can tell him I said so. This happens a lot in the context of sort of a vanilla kinkster relationship where the kinkster who's submissive or masochistic will go to the vanilla partner maybe after many years and say, I want to experience these things. I want to do these things. And the vanilla partner say, I'm not going to hurt you and you're disgusting and how awful and gross and blah, blah. And then everything that comes out of the vanilla partner's mouth is so hurtful, much more hurtful than whatever – Cops and robbers for grown-ups with your pants off, BDSM play, the kinkster partner was asking for. There's actually much more emotional violence and in infliction of pain in the rejection and the judging and the disgust and contempt that will be expressed by the vanilla partner in the face of the kinky, submissive, masochistic partner's request for a spanking. That always mystifies me in the part with the, these vanilla folks who the partner asks for a spanking – you know, I'm not going to hurt you. You're disgusting. How is that not hurtful to hear? It's much more hurtful to hear that than to be spanked. Whether you're in the market for a powerful wand massager with enhancing wand attachments or a three-inch wide dildo with a compatible strap-on harness to use on your boyfriend, ExtremeRestraints.com has plenty of choices for you. Extreme Restraints offers a wide selection and low prices for just about every sexual interest. Don't want to pay out of the nose for a body-safe paraben and glycerin-free lube? Extreme Restraints can get you 34 ounces of passion lube for only $22.95. Want to experiment with chastity play? ExtremeRestraints.com has over a dozen cock cages and plenty of even more devious devices. No matter what you order at ExtremeRestraints.com, be sure to save 10% by using the coupon code GGG. 2013. Use that coupon code by Sunday to get that discount doubled for a full 20% off your order. Just use coupon code GGG2013 by Sunday. My girlfriend and I had a question that will probably get you in trouble. 
we have a baby, a six-month-old baby, and she is a proud breastfeeder, and I'm proud that she does it too, and I'm glad she does it. But I have a little reservation about her being so public with her breastfeeding and not really using a cover or hiding it. I don't have that big of a problem. I just kind of have the um, concern about, like, I don't know, skeezy guys or young hormonal teenagers looking at her. I guess it's a jealousy thing, looking at her and then, you know, going home and rubbing one out or whatever. And we argue she doesn't think it, that guys look at her like that. Um, but I'm a guy, so I kind of know how guys think, especially when they're 15 and about to explode. Anyway, we just wanted to see what you would say. I hope you don't get in trouble if you do wear this. Public breastfeeding doesn't make your girlfriend uncomfortable. She doesn't care who sees her tit. So she's not tormented by this idea of teenage boys getting a look at what is not very sexy, frankly. Tits are not at their best when they have babies attached to them and going home and having a wank. I don't understand why you should be so concerned with it, even if it were true, even if teenage boys frequented, I don't know, places where ladies gather to breastfeed, Starbucks in the suburbs, I don't know where they do it, to ogle these boobs and then dash home for a wank. Have you heard of the internet? Have you heard of online porn? Teenage boys are not trawling the suburbs to check out tits with babies attached to them, burn that mental image into their brains, and then hold it there as they rush home to jack off? Do you really think that's what teenage boys who have access to online porn everywhere they go on their phones are doing? Really? You really think that's what's happening out in public? I think you have a control issue, some possessiveness. Those are your tits. You only want your eyes to touch them. And that's fine and you should own it. But don't wrap it up in this concern that your girlfriend is somehow being violated by teen male marauding masturbators who, who don't have access to online porn. The few whose parents don't have computers in their houses. It isn't happening. You should say to your girlfriend, it makes me uncomfortable. I realize that those breasts aren't mine or mine alone anymore, but I would prefer that the whole world not see them because I have this crazy insecurity. I have this hang-up. I have these irrational fears and these are irrational fears. Teenage boys are not looking for tits with babies attached to them to beat off about. They are not. So tell the girlfriend, I have this irrational fear. Please put a towel over it or something. But I would actually challenge you sometime when she's breastfeeding in public, not to stare at her, but to look around. Nobody's looking for the most part. I bet really nobody's looking. People for the most part avert their eyes, allow the woman to have that little space. Sometimes it catches people's eyes as they go by and then as soon as they go, oh, what was it? They'd look away. Chill the fuck out. Teenage boys have online porn. They don't need your girlfriend breastfeeding to beat off about. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create a professional website, blog, portfolio, and now an online store. Squarespace's new e-commerce solution is integrated to work with every Squarespace template, allowing sales for both physical and digital goods. For example, you can sell music CDs or MP3s, hardcover books, or eBooks. 
They have a fast merchant account set up so that you can accept payments right away with a single interface for order management. So you can track orders and customer emails, print shipping labels, and add coupons. Squarespace Commerce is included with a business plan subscription, which starts at $24 per month when you sign up for a year or $30 for a monthly plan. For a free trial, go to squarespace.com slash savage. Sign up for a free account. No credit card needed. Just try it out and start building your website. Then if you decide to purchase it, use offer code SAVAGE3 and get 10% off your first purchase on new accounts. That's squarespace.com slash savage and use offer code SAVAGE3. Hi, Dan. I'm calling about the Cannibal Cop. After I heard the show, I read Daniel Engberg's article, and he is not convincing. I mean, he kind of concludes the whole article by saying the weirdness of war fantasies is the most damning piece of evidence that the prosecutors have against him. But actually, if you think about it, that is the only defense that he has. He was stalking these women, making conspiracy plans with someone else. Anytime you read about serial killers, they start off small, and then they start escalating. They start testing the waters. And this cop, the first woman, he just made plans out. The second woman, he stalked. The third woman, he took out to lunch. It might have taken years for him to get up the nerve to actually kill one of these women, but I'm glad the FBI didn't wait. Thanks. Well, you'll be pleased to know that the cannibal cop, so dubbed despite the fact that he's actually never eaten anyone, was found guilty of conspiracy and faces at sentencing a possible uh, life term in prison. Daniel Engber, the columnist at Slate, who's been covering the trial and was there throughout the entire trial, uh, joins us now to talk about the verdict. Uh, so, Daniel, in response to the caller, you obviously don't think Gilberto Valle is a serial killer in the making or was one. The prosecution successfully argued that he was conspiring to cook, kill, and eat these women. Uh, but you believe he was just fantasizing. Yeah, exactly. Um, to prove the conspiracy, the prosecution had to show that there was a real plan that the defendant intended to carry through on the plan and that overt actions were taken in furtherance of the conspiracy. And I don't think they proved any one of those three things. But So what was the evidence that the prosecution had for taking action? It was this going to lunch and making a list and, uh, uh, you know, the things he might need if he was going to cook, kill and kidnap and eat one of these women or all of these women. But also it was going into a police database and looking up information on these women. How does that not all add up to at least a nascent conspiracy? Okay, well, there were, there were sort of two categories of, of actions that the government tried to prove. The first were internet searches. We can get to that later. I don't think that those are actions. That's a, a tricky area of the law of whether a Google search classifies as speech or research, or is, is that an overt action? That was a huge part of their case. Putting that aside, there were the things he did in the real world that everyone would agree are actions. He traveled to Maryland to visit his college friend, um, and he had brunch with her at a, a brunch place in a mall not that far from where she lived. And he uh, is said to have been on the block of uh, a friend of his wife's, um, although that testimony was disputed. It was sort of hard to figure out what was going on there. There were two different stories um, from two different witnesses. But as for the, the trip to Maryland to have brunch, I mean, it, this is, he sure he did. But whether you see that as an overt act in his plan to kidnap and eat that friend, um, that's up for, for dispute. And, and to me, having sat through the trial, it just seems absurd to think that that was part of his plan. He went with his wife and his baby. Um, 
His friend was the one who suggested the actual brunch and suggested the place to meet. Uh, the government suggested, implied that he was doing some kind of surveillance or reconnaissance for his future kidnapping. I can't really see how he would have gained any useful information. Um, I, you know, it's, it's possible that he didn't really want to hang out with his old friend. He just wanted to see her so that he could have more fodder for his masturbatory fantasies. Um, that's a little creepy, perhaps, but uh, that doesn't seem illegal to me. So you obviously weren't on the jury, and if you were on the jury, you would have voted to uh, acquit. What was your reaction when the verdict came through? Were you shocked after sitting through the trial that he was found guilty? Sitting through the trial, I thought that he's going to be acquitted. You know, I spoke to a former federal prosecutor who gave me the sense that this was not a very strong case from the government. Um, when the defense decided that the defendant would not testify on his own behalf, and when they decided that they weren't going to have um, expert testimony on his behalf either, I think they felt that the government had done kind of a lousy job. So I really thought he was going to be acquitted, at least on the conspiracy charge. I thought he would be found guilty of the police database. It sounds, it sounds like the defense did a lousy job if they didn't bring any expert witnesses or really build a case for him and just assume that the government's case was so lousy that they would be acquitted. Did, they, did the defense not weigh how shocking his fantasies were and how uh, easily – you know, they're, they're, they're pretty shocking. And I say this as someone who's – I don't know if you know this, but I had a friend who was eaten by Jeffrey Dahmer. So I take a kind of a dim view of cannibalism fantasies myself uh, given my life experience. Um, but was the defense negligent in not bringing in expert witnesses who could testify to the fact that a lot of people with these kinds of – hyper-violent fantasies that they never intend to act on, live them and explore them by constructing, you know, to walking up to the line and stopping fantasies basically. They flesh it out to be as realistic as possible and as plausible and then they never act on it. And that's what your argument in your articles uh, at Slate have been that he had done this before. He had fantasized, fantasized, fantasized and never actually taken any steps to kill, kidnap, kill, cook and eat anyone. Was, I, I guess I'm just sort of floundering now. Was the defense negligent? I don't, I don't believe so. I mean, in, in retrospect, their plan failed. Um, so one thing would have been to have, the, to have the cannibal cop go on the stand himself, look the jury in the eyes and say, listen, these are my fantasies and I never would dream of doing them in real life. I think that might have been effective. He's, um, he's not a scary-looking human being. He's sort of sweet-faced. But that's incredibly risky. I mean, the, the government could come back at him and say, well, you know, we, we found this picture of, a, of a, a woman being tortured, a woman with her throat cut on your computer. Did you masturbate to this image of a dead human body? And he would perjure himself if he said, um, you know, if he didn't answer that question truthfully. So I think it's, the defense was dealing with this situation where they wanted to kind of inoculate the jury against um, – how disturbing these fantasies were, but all of these things cut both ways. The more, if you have him go on the stand and talk about them, he's going to be grilled by the prosecution. As far as a, and a psychiatrist could come on and, and talk about, um, you know, having interviewed uh, Gil Valley and, and, and asked him and talk about his, you know, how he got interested in, in bondage and vor, but then that would give the government the chance to get their own expert witness. Let's talk about the caller's concern that there was escalation in, in his behavior and in his fantasies 
And you know, it might have taken years for him to get around to acting on them. But isn't it better when it comes to someone whose fantasies are kidnapping, cooking, killing, torturing and eating someone to err on the side of tossing that motherfucker in prison than to wait? No, I, I, I reject that. I mean, so there's some factual issues. There wasn't exactly escalation. At least it wasn't presented in the, in the trial as such. Um, when the FBI looked through uh, his files on his computer, they found evidence of conspiracies going back to February. And I, I use conspiracies in quotes, although, you know, technically these were proven to be real conspiracies. But, you know, he made he he formed a plan to kidnap and abduct one woman in February and that day passed and, and he never lifted a finger, nor did any of his co-conspirators. Nothing happened. No one ever discussed that. There was never any follow-up, never any, you know, when they, when they continued to have these chats months later, no one ever said, hey, you know, what happened to, weren't we going to grab her on February 12th and then you never showed up, you know, with her in your trunk as you'd promised. So th- there's evidence that of the of of to me of the opposite of escalation of just this it's a steady roll of these fantasy chats week after week month after month and these chats that you know might have been more than fantasy but nothing ever came of it uh, the defendant never purchased anything any rope or duct tape or or started constructing the rotisserie grill that he'd said he was going to build he never rented the cabin in the mountains that he claimed to have I mean there's just this whole list of of fictitious elements to these chats that, uh, you know, that I, I just don't know how you explain that if these are, are real specific uh, strategic uh, suggestions. So why should people who aren't into vor or don't have dangerous, violent fantasies give a shit about this guy and what happened to him? Yeah, I mean, I think it, this is an issue for anything that you do online. Again, a big part of the government's case was that some of these Google searches that he made were in fact actions in furtherance of the conspiracy. And I mean, some of what he's typing in, it's just obviously he's typing what occurs to him. He types in, you know, I want to sell a girl. And I I just had trouble believing that he thought he would get useful information on on how to do it by typing that phrase into Google. So Um, so your argument is that we should all be nervous about you know, some random, perhaps violent thought occurs to us. We dink around on Google for five minutes to, to to satisfy our curiosity, and then that could come back to haunt us ten, twenty years later. That could be thrown in our faces in a trial. I don't know, ten to twenty years later, but I I think that uh, stuff that you say, stories. He, I mean, he was explicitly writing short stories at certain points. He was on a social network of a sort. Um, he was interacting with friends and uh, you friends know, with dangerous. Friends with dangerous, violent fantasies. So how, I, I'm just worried. I, I, I want to know what this is. What you feel is the issue for everyone else in this? You say dangerous, violent fantasies. Um, certainly violent, but dangerous. That's that's what's at issue here. Why do you mm-hmm. say? Why do you think they're dangerous? Just in their very essence. I don't. I perhaps shouldn't have used that word. There's a lot of people out there with violent fantasies who aren't dangerous. We talk about that all the time here, particularly on the podcast. We talk about BDSM all the time. We talk about uh, you know dom-sub and slave-master relationships without actually uh, suggesting that anyone is really buying and selling human beings, which is illegal. So perhaps not dangerous but definitely violent. Yes, definitely violent. 
I mean, I think this is, well, it's a question and it is a difficult one of at what point does it become dangerous? And, you know, obviously some line has to be drawn. I I certainly wouldn't argue in the defense in, in this case wouldn't argue and no one would argue that you have to wait until he actually is, you know, uh, tiptoeing up behind a woman on the street with a bottle of chloroform in his hand. But where's that line? And I think that line in, in this trial was drawn, uh, dangerously close to just, uh, speech and thought. Daniel Engberg, columnist for Slate. Are you going to continue to follow this as it goes into appeal? Yeah, sure. I mean, we'll we'll see what happens. There are a bunch of sort of technical issues they could appeal on that might not be so interesting conceptually, but I'll I'll keep an eye on it. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone with us today, Daniel. All right. Thanks, Dan. Hi, Dan. I have a question. Um, I just found out that my best friend, a straight guy, he is engaged to his fiance, a, a, a beautiful young woman. And I just found out that she fucked his dad um, a couple years ago, about four years ago, whatever, and he doesn't know. The fiance doesn't know um, that she fucked his dad four years ago. So I, I'm kind of wondering, you know, all of her friends know and you know, everybody knows what's going on except for the fiance. I, I'm kind of wondering, do I have a responsibility to my friend? Does she, do I need to talk to her first? What is the protocol for this type of situation? Because I just can't help but feel like when he finds out that they're going to either A, break up, if it's before the wedding, or B, get a divorce if it's after the wedding. This is a secret that's going to come out sooner or later. Too many people know. So what you do in a situation like this, and I'm just going to channel Prudy because she's actually handled questions very similar to this one a lot. And I'm, I'm a fan of Prudy. I read Prudy every week at Slate. Uh, you go to her and you say, everybody knows this except your fiancé, except my friend. And so you're going to tell him. And if you don't tell him – in this prescribed amount of time, then I will have to tell him because I'm not going to let him marry you and then have this explode in his face down the road. You have to tell him about this. Maybe he'll still decide to marry you. Maybe he won't care that dad snooped you too. But this will come out and better now before a wedding, before you two scramble your DNA together and make a child and give his dad who quasi cuckled at him a grandchild – it needs to come out now. Go to her. You tell him or I tell him, but he's being told. Hi, Dan. I'm calling in response to the man who was divorced and was having trouble with his daughter. I had to stop the podcast and call right away because it made me feel so much. Um, my dad did the same thing, kind of, when I was 18 and split up with my mom very quickly, married the woman two days after the divorce. My mom was final contributed nothing to my college education or to my health insurance, as was outlined in the divorce agreement. We went for two years without actually talking. And it wasn't that I did the same thing that this man's daughter did. He was literally that much of a jackass. But, um, you know, I grew up, and I want to tell the father to wait and give her time because she will grow up and realize that you are, in fact, trying and you do still love her, and it will work out. Um, I had it put into perspective pretty well by a college friend who um, 
lost his dad when he was 16, very suddenly. And I would rant and rave about my dad to him. And he would say, you know, you still have one. And I realize that now. And my dad is incredibly flawed and fucked up horribly. And, you know, I, I realize that he's kind of a stupid guy, but he loves me and he's trying. So keep that in mind. And we're going to leave it there. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the podcast. If you want to record a question or comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-201-2720. And quickly before we go, we want to send a happy birthday message to Jack. His sister, Bevy, sent me an email asking me if I would say happy birthday, Jack. His birthday is March 21st, and he's a fan of the podcast and turns on a lot of people, including his sister, to the podcast. In no other way does he turn on his sister. So happy birthday to you, Jack, and thanks for spreading the Savage Lovecast around. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Risk Youth. We'll be back at you next week another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading, and happy birthday, Jack. Happy birthday, Jack.